This week on Out Now with Our Name, we are doing a Sundance recap with guest Alex Billington. Sundance? More like Schmundance. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe, hello! Hi! Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. However... Every now and then, we like to have these special bonus episodes, whatever, whatever it's fun, one of our fun commentary tracks, something completely different. And this is something completely different. This is, uh, it's the end of January, and that mm-hmm. means the, the the old Sundance Film Festival has rolled around again. Neither Abe and I have gone to Sundance, because Abe's allergic to Utah and I'm allergic to snow. So, <laughs> what of course we do is we bring in a ringer who can tell us a little thing or two about the old experience going to Sundance and the films and what have you. And so we do have just that kind of a person with us. We have, from FirstShowing.net, he escaped the nest and landed in Palm Springs. It's Alex Billington. Hey, what's up, guys? Back in back in ye old America for a good old <laughs> chat with you guys. I know. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you're you're, 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 you're uh, uh, a region very, relatively close to us, which is a uh, that's that's nice. That's a nice change of pace from your. From your yeah, I know. Location. It's not. It's not. It's not middle of the night for me. It's not middle of the morning for you. Yeah, <laughs> all's well. It all, it all worked out. <laughs> But uh, Alex, how are you? How are you doing? Good, good. I'm I'm exhausted. The Sundance is I don't want to say brutal. That's not the right word, but it's really uh, exhausting. <laughs> just uh, for me, and I, I assume many other people who go there too are critics and just want to see films. It's just like we for ten days straight, we just go to films nonstop, and that means like wake up at seven a.m. and sometimes go to midnight till two a.m. Just constantly going to films all day, every day. So it's after all of that time, I'm really tired, and I'm looking forward for a week of rest. <laughs> well, very, very cool. Well, uh, we'll get we'll get to Sundance in a moment because that's really pretty much the most of what we're going to do this t- today for this episode. But real quick, I want to get to some show notes. Abe, do you know what day it is? Yeah, it's o two o two twenty twenty. What does that mean, Abe? Palindrome of the for the first nine hundred and nine years, it's the first palindrome. It's like, a numerical palindrome in life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We we'll love, never see it again. We love numerical palindromes on this podcast. This one's one in life. It's great. This yeah. Is, this is a great day yeah. for recording a podcast episode for us. We did it. We, we, we did, did it. it. The I podcast say, that, I, that loves palindromes. We I don't want to say that we could take credit for making this happen, but I feel like we kind of had a little help to do this. I feel like we did it. Yeah. yeah I, I think like we were it was par- all us. partially responsible for how this happened. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Take that, Alex Billington. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. But, uh, I mean, what'd you do? Go to go to the film festival and see movies that we haven't seen yet? I don't hear the first yeah, word podcast taking credit for a numerical palindrome today. That's true. <laughs> we did not. That is, I give you guys all the credit. Congrats. But no, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it's a fun little piece of piece of uh, date trivia, trivia, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, that's going on. Uh, what else in terms of actual important show notes? Uh, new commentary track. It is a new month. It is February. Abe, I haven't told you this, but Brandon and I, along with uh, Peter and Yancey, we talked about uh, some ideas for our next commentary track for this month. And um, well, let's just say Harrison Ford has a new movie coming out, Call of the Wild. And yes. it's also the 35th anniversary of a little film called Witness. So we're going to oh, be talking about Witness oh, this month. <laughs> the I mean, super hilarious, movie. action-packed Peter Weir <laughs> film. <laughs> Super hilarious is right, but only in subtle ways. <laughs> Featuring Danny Glover as the bad guy. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna talk about Witness. I think that that should be fun. That should be that should be a fun one to do for a, a stark <laughs> drama with Harrison Ford. But we will have a lot of fun with it. Um, what else? 
iTunes reviews and ratings. If you like our silly nonsense so far, guess what? There's hours and hours of that on iTunes, sometimes in a more structural format. But you can go to iTunes, find all of that at Out There in a Name. Just search that. Then, while you're there, looking at the list of films and commentaries we've done over the years, you could also give us a rating and review. It'd be, it'd be great. It'd pop us up in the old iTunes charts. Yeah. I mean, give one specifically for me because I'm feeling bad and Aaron has one for him. Yeah. I mean, we got to even <laughs> it out. <laughs> so. Yeah. So just write something, somebody. Or maybe I'm just going to ghost the account myself. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's, we're going to get to Sundance. We'll get to Sundance. I will say after Alex finishes talking about Sundance, let's, we, got, we got some other things we can talk about, too. We might, we, there's, a, there's a new trailer for a certain big, fast movie that came, that came out that Abe and I certainly want to have a discussion about. <laughs> what a great And uh, some, some other things. So we'll, we'll see if Alex yeah. sticks around or not. But regardless, we, we, we're going to talk about Sundance now for a, a big chunk of time. So, uh, Alex, how, yeah. what, what, how, how's, uh, let's start from the beginning. What airline did you fly to get to Sundance? <laughs> Delta. Well, real that Delta. Oh, yeah, they, they're, they're, Salt Lake City is their hub, so they fly everyone to Salt Lake City. There you go. Cool. And now, nice. what, uh, <laughs> how, how, how things get started? And then, was... I, and then I took a horse chariot up to Park City. That no. was great. I rode, I Wait, rode with Minnie and Mandy. And... No, I'm, they're, they're winter horses. Come on now. <laughs> this is, this is, there's no other way to get to Park City if you're not in a horse and buggy and carriage and you know you gotta it's, it's, this is the festival life it's a challenge <laughs> you guys are like what I was like now I feel bad for not going <laughs> well, yeah, that would be a great experience if it was no I, I, I maybe I've mentioned this before um, but in the past I said that the, some of the best festivals are the ones that are quote unquote hard to get to uh-huh. Because uh, you can't fly into Park City, you can't fly into Cannes, you know, you can't fly into Telluride. You have to like fly nearby and then drive to these places. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's that's my joke. But it's it was a good time. It was a, a, a good festival. It's hard. I hate doing the whole comparison thing between years because the films are so incredibly different every year and uh-huh. I don't want to sit there and say oh well uh, because you know two years ago we had Call Me By Your Name then nothing's as good this year as it was that year but it's like we had so many great films this year too and I, I've actually seen a couple of critics um, say that this is one of the strongest years they've ever been to well that's good to so, hear I, yeah. I like I, knowing that you were gonna be, knowing that we're gonna have this podcast, I haven't like deliberately like went out of my way to read all the things about Sundance. I've gotten like an idea of some of the films that were there just based off some of the directors or the bigger names, just because it hits the headlines pretty quickly. Yeah, right. But uh, yeah, it's good. It's it's encouraging to hear that. I know we've had you on along with other guests in the past, whether it be David Bax, friend of the show, or uh, Scott Menzel in the past, who was unfortunately not able to make it today. Uh, we've had other you know guests talk about Sundance, and sometimes you guys, including you, t- said like the. You know, it just wasn't as exciting as it's been in previous years. Um, so, no, it's good to... Mark Johnson, too. He's another one who's we've got on a number of times oh, yeah. talking about this. Um, but, yeah, no, it's encouraging to hear that, yeah, there's a, it's a strong year for uh, for films coming out of Sundance, specifically. It's also, like, tough because we can each see 30 of the, you know, 120 films that are playing. Uh-huh, exactly. And if you... Yeah. I don't want to say you've chosen the wrong 30, but, you know, if, you, if everything you see is mediocre and then someone else sees 30 different films and say they're great, then, you know, who's to say why you know a better selection than the other and that's actually part of the challenge is when i'm going i'm like not only before the festival but when i'm there i'm trying to keep my eye on and 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 listen to buzz about things that i need to see or not based on you know maybe i skipped it at the original ticket choice selection and then later on i'm like oh my god everyone's talking about it. i have to see it and how do i fit it in then and what do i do and how do i change my schedule um 
but that's the that's the general thing is like it's a combination of guessing early what you think will be good but also keeping in sense of what people are saying um and this is actually one of the things i want to ask you guys as people who are not there and who are kind of following from abroad Uh what do you what what are the ones that you've heard like what are the ones that have been people have mentioned that have stuck in your mind because i've always thought when i'm there i'm hearing about everything but when you're not there are you even following that closely and are there ones that have had more conversation than others and is that just because people say they're great things or just because people are saying they're like crazy things happening in it in I think it's actually a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. I I've been hearing some crazy things about um, is it some Alice and Brie movie or I, I forget which <laughs> where it's uh, it's just seemingly nonsensical and then I've been hearing some really good things about you know like uh, some documentary stuff that's coming to Netflix some coming soon with Taylor Swift and it's like oh well <laughs> you know it's good to know that people are I, I feel as though the the news quote unquote news or the communications that are coming out of Sundance. Like a film festival like this, it, it is a high profile, but people are just tweeting for the sake of trying to get clicks and likes and, and kind of just like exposing themselves out there so that they are like, quote unquote, the first person to say, hey, this movie, watch out for it. It's going to be an Oscar contender for sure kind of thing. So yeah. it's a strange mixture of both. Like there's no one real strong sense that I really get one way or another. I mean, I, in the past, I've heard so like like when, like Moonlight hit pretty strong when it when it w- was at Sunday. It's like I, it, like I didn't stop hearing about that movie. Call Me by Your Name was another one. This year, I, I I haven't heard one that's necessarily that kind of level of strength as far as like this is going to be a film that you you're not going to forget. It's going to make it all the way to Oscars. And and yeah. the ones I the ones I can think of, what there's the one that I named in um your intro, um, Palm Springs, right? That's the Andy Samberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Film, yeah. Lonely Island guys like writing it, I believe. Um, yeah. And just because that's you know the high profile of that kind of thing. There's some other like ones I've obscurely heard about. I, uh, oh wait, there's the Miranda July one, Cajillionaire. Um, I know that one's. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, and there's one. It's an I believe it's an Asian film. It starts with an M. Mm-hmm. I think Steve Minari. Minari. Yeah. Minari. Yeah, I've heard yeah. some really interesting things about that. Yes, all so three of them. <laughs> oh, cool. No, so, um, it's like a few. So a few of those have like gotten out as far as what I've paid attention to. But again, like I said, I purposely just haven't really dove too far into it, just because I was waiting until to do this podcast to hear more specifically about some of these movies. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Um, and it's actually funny. The the reference I literally heard someone at Sundance this year say this is Napoleon Dynamite. It was like a major uh, festival moment. Mm-hmm. where I was not even doing my website at the time it debuted. I think it was like the year before I launched my website. And that was a film that like everyone heard about from Sundance. It was like the Sundance darling of that year. And I remember I like drove two hours to the nearest city that was doing an early screening just to see it because it was one of those like everyone has to see it. And the next time you have to see it is when, I think it's Fox Searchlight released it, when they yeah, were like yeah. beginning the preview screenings and then you know it became this thing. And literally at Sundance this year, some dude was like, uh, oh man, I got into Sundance because of Napoleon Dynamite, and I was like, "Wow, wow. that's what?" <laughs> well, just because it was like it's also the the quintessential Sundance movie in that it it covers all the bases in terms of like quirkiness and you know a, a, a debut yeah. and like uh, Jared Hess and and um, yeah, the just kind of the sort quirkiness of... and the obscure kind of sensibilities it has. Like I, I get why it you know kind of typifies what you expect from a Sundance film specifically like a quirky comedy from the 2000s like it yeah yeah exactly. was, little, was little miss sunshine a Sundance movie 
Yes, it was that one yeah, as well. Yeah. It's similarly in that kind of vein as well. Then, like, yeah, and the, I only mentioned especially... that mainly because I really like Little Bit Sunshine and I really hate Napoleon Dynamite. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah, that happens. Part of the discussion this year was a lot of similarly like the the perfect Sundance film. Uh-huh. Um, and not that this, not that I feel like this is a major problem, but some people have criticized it in the past few years for being too mainstreamy, like saying. Uh, well, these films are just premiering here because they're just mainstream or they have a major name in it. And you're losing that sense of discovery and that sense of like finding uh, and, and Sundance probably would never want to admit this. But like the the typical uh, traits of what makes a Sundance movie, which is like exactly what you described about Napoleon Diamond or Little Miss Sunshine. And that if a film fits that bill, that's what people are like. They're like, oh, this is the perfect Sundance movie, and it's a good movie, and it's a discovery of some new name we never heard about. So there were a couple of those this year that like – perfectly fit in that the 40 year old version being one of them minari pretty much as well was one of them um i'm trying to think of what else but just those are the those are i I love seeing those too because it is a true moment of make or break it like last year the farewell was a make or break it for for lulu uh lulu vang and she i think that's how i say it in my mom's word so she 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 explains that like you know, you bring a film that you're confident in, and I think H24 was already behind it, but at the same time, you don't know how it's going to play and what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And just the the way it launched from Sundance changed her life. And I, and I would say, even if it didn't make money, which it did, but even if it didn't, it doesn't mean it didn't have an impact for her and for uh, everyone in it, from Makofina to, to the, the, the woman who plays the grandma. Oh, like, all of that has been incredible, so. Yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah, you can say that for plenty of like filmmakers that have gone on to make you know much bigger scale things. Where I think of uh, like Better Luck Tomorrow with Justin Lin, I mean, yeah, that was a huge yeah. player then, and I mean now his character from that film is still living on apparently in the upcoming Fast <laughs> <Series movie. laughs> but movies. Um, yeah, um, trying to think. Right, I'm looking at the nominations for this year's Oscars. Were any films of these? From you mentioned the farewell, obviously, which was completely snubbed for Oscars, which is still baffling right. to me. I'm trying to think of anything else here is something that was at Sundance originally. I don't think so because all the ones that everyone wanted ended up getting nothing. Sadly, it like it, yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, it's like there's usually like one or two that sneak in mm-hmm. with it, with something strange. Like the farewell should have snuck in with something. I'm, very, I'm baffled by that, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> I just don't yeah. understand. Um, oh, the, well, the documentaries, The Edge of Doc. Uh, That's what the I was thinking. Of the, the documentaries are, I know some of those got were. An American Factory and Honeyland, those yeah. three were all there. And yeah. and that's actually one of my favorite things about Sundance is that they are one of the strongest festivals for documentary premieres. Like, oh, Cannes sure. yeah. doesn't care about documentaries okay. at all. Mm-hmm. But Sundance is like the best documentaries come out of Sundance. Um, mostly because they're just caring about what they put in there. And this year, especially, uh, the one that won the Grand Jury Prize, I'll talk about this right now, is Boy State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you guys might have heard of documentary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's from uh, a, a filmmaker named Jesse Moss, who um, his last film uh, was another one that I loved called The Overnighters, and uh, this was 2014, and and his it just it just blew me away in terms of what it was, uh, which is about this priest who actually like was accused of abusing people, and yet the film was about him, and it's crazy. But his latest one is called Boy State, and it's about this. Um, I don't know if it's annual, but every couple of years, this convention expo thing that happens in Texas and other states where a bunch of people come together, like a thousand 17-year-old kids get together and basically form their own governments within one week of time. And it's this like political thing where they get to try out what it's like to 
be in politics. <laughs> and um, as you can tell from the fact that they made a film about this, it's, it's exactly as horrifying as it sounds. Where uh, And the film is so intimately shot on the kid kind of get higher positions kind of not only because they're ambitious but just because of the way they handle the environment of what's happening in this mm-hmm. moment and uh and then what they go through is in at least this is what i thought it which is that they all they all come in with good intentions or they all come in also with um prejudiced politics that have you know they've been learned through their life so far you know they're only 17 year olds so they all they all come in and this is texas they all come in with their texas mentalities and their ideas and then they get together and they're like, oh, we're going to work well and communicate and, you know, have a good time creating the government. And you like within an hour of the time in the documentary, you're like, that's not happening. <laughs> and they get vicious. <laughs> and one of the main guys, they try to impeach, you know, because they just don't like him. And then there's like there's like uh, Instagram accounts they mo- they create to mock the other you know side and to to make fun of certain nominees. And just like it's like I can't I mean, the whole I think the whole point of the film was to show that, hey, we all think politics is great and, you know, we're going to let. Uh, like unfiltered kids who aren't tainted by adulthood try to prove that to you and then you watch over the course of this hour and a half film and you're like that's not happening (laughs) clearly it's this just fest of mania and and um personal attacks on people and having to lie and be dishonest to create different like to to vote for different people and to do different things so Right. Um, but it's it, it won the Grand Jury Prize for good reason. So yeah, uh, other than Boy State and documentary-wise, the, the other docs I love, one of them is called The Truffle Hunters. I don't know if you guys heard Ooh. about this at all. I'm into it already. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> about uh, these dudes, these old dudes in Italy who have their dogs and they go hunt for truffles. And it's this like beautifully put together um, like poetic film where it's just these static shots that they set up and they like capture these moments with these dogs. And the, the one, the other best part about it is there's this POV shot of one of the dogs. They put a camera on its head and it's like running around the forest and you can hear it sniffing. And it's just, it's, it's one of my favorite shots of the whole festival. Um, cause I'm a dog lover, but also just because it was so creative. Uh-huh. And I love that in documentaries where it's not just the filmmaking that is interesting, but the creativity of what they're doing. Honeyland being another example of that, where you're like, oh, it could just be a standard doc, but then you realize, holy crap, like the efforts and lengths they had to go to to record what's happening in Honeyland and the creativity needed to then craft this into a film that's something that's not only comprehensible, but thrilling to watch is, is where great filmmaking comes from and, and, and examples of great filmmaking. Um, and the Truffle Hunters, I think, is one of the most beloved. I heard about it halfway through. Everyone told me to see it. And then the screening I went to just a few days ago was completely packed. Like 500 people lying out the door. Everyone wanted to get into it. Excitement, buzz. Um, and it really, it, it, it's one of my favorite films of the festival, doc or feature. Um, and that's another one that I just love so much. Well, you had me uh, truffle. But um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and the POV shot sounds great. By the way, yes, I was, I was gonna say it wasn't Allison Brie. It's Anne Hathaway that I was thinking about. It was, it's uh, uh, the Anne. Yeah. I was that, like, that, I that, it, that's like, the Netflix movie, right? The D, yeah, is it the D Reese film. I want to talk about that just because. Uh, well, let's let's get into it. Let's talk. Let's talk about some of these films that you've. Uh, seen yeah, so yeah, far. because I want to talk about this one first because uh, I don't like to talk about too much negative stuff but the last thing he wanted is absolutely trash okay <laughs> and, 
and everyone says this. I don't like. I don't want someone to accuse me of like, oh, you're bashing this movie. But no, everyone. And this was a great day of films, and that just this premiered on a, a day when there was Palm Springs in the morning, uh, and Nine Days I saw just before it, and The Father, the Anthony Hopkins ones. So we all went into Last Thing He Wanted with excitement and hope because Dee Reese is great. She made Mudbound, which everyone loved, and it's a great film. Mudbound she's is great. Clearly, yeah, she's clearly a talented filmmaker. She knows what she's doing. I don't know how this happened. It is a disaster. Like, the first hour is okay. She's trying to put this together. It's Anne Hathaway plays this, like, journalist. I guess it's based on a true story. Some journalist, and it's set in, the um, I think, the 80s or something. And uh, her father, played by Willem Dafoe, acting super kooky, uh, despite her being a journalist for, you know, political, the political sphere and, and like, or investigative journalism, her father is actually an arms dealer, <laughs> which is strange. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so she, she like her in a, her mother dies. This is not really part of the film, but her mother passes away. And so at some point she goes to reconnect with her father who doesn't even realize that his, his wife, that they're not connected, but she had passed away. And so while he's talking, while they're having a conversation, uh, he he tells her about this deal that's kind of coming together but about to fall apart, and she has this like moment of empathy for her father where she's like, oh, I feel like he's worried that his life's gonna collapse if or he might even die if this deal doesn't go together. So she's like, hey, I'm gonna go help him. And so the next thing she you know she's like on this flight to an, some country in South America you don't know which one it is and you're like, what is she doing? And then she just basically gets caught up in an arms deal. <laughs> and and, then, and then the, the second half of the movie is um, an editing disaster. Mm, it, okay. it it's not even you can't even understand what the heck is happening. Performances are okay, but they don't really mean anything. Willem Dafoe's totally gone at this point. And honestly, the rest of the movie you're wondering like what is going on? And then Ben Affleck is in it as this like State Department guy who will randomly appear in scenes and then not. Oh, so he's and then John Hamm. Basically, yes. That's it. That seemed like his role like last year. <laughs> it really, it's so strange. And I remember everyone in the film, and like halfway through when it starts to get really messy, you could just tell the excitement in the audience just like sucked out of the room. And then at the end, of course, people, you know, applaud because of, they have to. But then mm-hmm. uh, we all got out of the film, and there was a party that night for, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, for bloggers and for the young folk of the film twitter world (laughs) and at this party everyone is like wow that was terrible (laughs) and it sucks because we all wanted d reese to make another good film and follow question is this is this probably the worst film that you saw at sundance yes of of what i saw here yeah okay um and i mean part of it was just like why why did d reese choose to tell this story it's not really that interesting of course we have a lot of filmmakers doing stories about journalism these days because they want to remind us know how important journalism is but there's just like nothing to this that is interesting and nothing to it that makes you think like oh journalism is great because you're almost like why did this woman sacrifice her entire life and career you know everything she had going for her because she wanted to help her father in an arms deal it it doesn't even make sense um and i guess it's a real story just it's like why did d reese choose to do this and i think netflix uh, honestly i think sundance showed it because it was d reese and i think netflix just went along for the ride. And, and I think the problem, no, this is a whole other podcast, but I think the problem with Netflix these days is they don't, they just let filmmakers do whatever they want and they have no sense of crafting a film. 
And I think you can feel that in a lot of films. Like um, We've certainly had this discussion in the past about some of the Netflix things. Yeah, I would say, I bet, I bet you guys liked it, but Six Underground being an example of like Bay Unleashed, and it's similar with this, where it's just, you're like, I, I don't know if they needed more work on the script or if they needed more work in the, like someone needed to come in and be like, this film is a mess and you need to edit it better and put it's it together a, yeah. more. It seems like it's a two-sided thing where it's like, it's neat yeah. to see auteurs have creative freedom to do what they need to without having to worry about these standards of a typical studio. But at the same time, there is a reason mm -hmm. why you have studios handing in their kinds of notes and what have you, because it's not always, films is a collaborative process. It's not always just like whatever the director says is probably the best version of this thing. You have to, you know, have a level of balance as far as who's like trying to make everyone else trying to come together to kind of make the best thing possible and it's not always a too yeah, many cooks exactly. in the kitchen thing it can easily be a here's what we've all come together to realize this is the best way possible for a movie but uh i want, yeah. I want to keep going because you've seen many films so I, and we have so, yeah, so much yeah. time what 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 else what, what what's coming next well here? the other two i want to mention one of them i haven't seen but i've heard is similar uh, i think it's called surge um, and it just won an award last oh, it's night. Oh, a soda documentary? <laughs> no. <but that> was, <laughs> um, it's a Ben Wishaw film where, uh, and it's set in London, I guess. And he, he he's, uh, it's, it unfolds over 24 hours, it says. But it, uh, a lot of people describe it as similar to Joker, where a, a guy kind of starts losing it and goes on a, supposedly a killing spree. I don't know exactly because I didn't see it. But something like that, where he kind of gets unhinged and gets crazy as he as he goes along. Um, but similarly, one I did see that is also was described as a Joker movie was Spree. Um, and this one uh, stalls, stalls <laughs> this is where we're at now, where it's a Joker movie. Like, <laughs> no, 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 but, but like I, when people said that, I was like, oh, come on. I thought, yeah. like, and then I saw it. And I was like, actually, they're right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Oof. Because because people are using Joker movie as in like the lonely, you know, scared dude, single guy, young guy who then um, over the course of you know learning his lack of social presence or interest to anyone in the world becomes violent and and the, and the movies are, and they're are also like, like artistically hollow movies like that's the other part of it <laughs> i don't agree with that because free is artistically awesome well no, um, i'm saying if, if you're describing a joker movie to me it sounds like joker, okay, yeah, so yeah. it has like seemingly topical ideas with a good lead performance but ultimately means nothing like that's what a joker movie sounds to me like i know what you mean but no this is this is to me spree is actually everything joker wanted to be I, and that, I mean, that's the that's what i that's the encouraging thing i want to hear uh, so. yeah yeah, yeah. Good to so hear. Spree is Spree is also the next evolution of the um, shot uh, or presented entirely from computer screens movie. Oh, okay. So it's a, uh, what's where, it called? What was the Timber Bay Mac? Yeah, that, yeah, that, was, that like, one. A, yeah. Um, Search was another one. Searching, um, yeah, yeah, and so they they it's similar to that where it's like, uh, but this one's more live stream. And so Joe Carey plays this like lonely dude who made YouTube videos for two years and then no one watched them. Okay, and yeah, suddenly, I saw the image. This is the one, the guy with Stranger Things, Joe Carey. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. So, so suddenly he gets this idea to, um, he calls it um, the lesson, hashtag the lesson. And he puts streaming um, cameras inside of his uh, rideshare car. And the ride-sharing service is called Spree. That's why it's the name of the film. Uh -huh. And so he goes around and he literally, and this isn't really a spoiler because it's like the first 30 minutes, but he literally kills people. By like poisoning water, and they drink the bottled water in the back of his rideshare car, and uh, and and that's like the beginning of his story. And it's basically this, similarly to to Surge, a over twenty four hours kind of movie where you watch him get angry. And of course, the point of this, similar to, I don't want to say Joker, but the point of making these movies, because otherwise you're like, why is why are we watching this? Is 
is in this one social media commentary and streaming commentary. Mm-hmm. And so um, Spree's incredibly well made because not only is it all shot and presented on the screens, but there's actually comment streams and people replying and people interacting constantly to what's happening in a way that fuels his rage and fuels his killing spree. Mm-hmm. And um, what you learn about is there, the, the main like uh, opposite character to him is this um, uh, black woman who's a comedian in LA where he's driving around and he picks her up at one point, but she gets away and the rest of the film, you're, you're kind of switching back to her stream and she has a show coming up that night and she, she's providing like the literal in your face commentary about why social media is bad, why you're watching Joe Keery kill people and get away with it for so long and then essentially it's kind of like they cross paths and you know that whole thing this sounds like, like millennial that. nightcrawler it it is but even more intense like the whole movie people are supposed to be laughing because it's kind of a you know it's a dark, dark comedy. comedy yeah but yeah. like i'm literally yeah. sitting there like oh my god this is intense like like sweating bullets holy crap this is this is scary and scary in a way where it's a thrill ride for both literal and obvious reasons but also um, I thought it was a really strong social commentary on, like, why so streaming media. Like, he's, uh, I don't think this is a true story, but he's killing someone, and people in the comments are like, this is fake, this is fake, you know, great, great acting, great performance. And you're like, how do people just get sucked into that? Like, even the viewers are just thinking, oh, this is dumb viewing content. Like, he's, he's fake killing a guy to just get views and get you know, more clicks and likes, but you're like, wait, he's really doing this. And then it's actually kind of like, hey, this is happening in the real world. And again, similar to Joker and all these movies is you're like, well, what is this? Why do we need to see this kind of movie and this thing happening to teach us a lesson? I don't know if it will teach us a lesson. And I don't know if people will take it to heart. But I thought I thought Spree is a much stronger movie than anything I've seen in terms of that hit you in the face with that. And I thought just from the creativity standpoint, it's awesome the way it's put together. And a lot of other people I've talked to who saw it just were like obsessed with reading the comments appearing on screen because there's just so many all the time. And they're so, they're so accurate. They're so like the director of the Q and a said he spent months writing these Hmm. on his own just to put them in. Yeah. Um, And this is another one that I love discovering it's funny is because I had, you know, I had looked at it on the schedule and I thought, okay, I'm going to check it out. But I didn't know that that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And that when you catch it and you're like, wow, they put a lot of work into this. They really made something strong. There's a couple of scenes that I'm like, I don't know how they pulled that off. There's a huge car chase on the highway in LA. And I'm like, I don't know how they pulled this off. Uh, especially because it's all found footage shot and it looks real. <laughs> I don't know if they just did it one night in LA, but there's, there's, there's a lot of great work in it. Um, that's that's for the technical aspect. And the other large takeaway is don't drink water from ride-sharing cars. Got it. Well, that was the joke at the at the screening. That, like, <laughs> you hope you're not taking ride share tonight because it's, it's going to be scary when you're leaving. What about that horse-drive carriage? <laughs> yeah, true. I wish I could take that. Yeah. Um, the other one that I would love to talk about is Palm Springs, which we kind of mentioned. But um, this is the strangest one that I would say is not a Sundance movie. I have no idea how it played at the festival. Yeah, the it way is, it sounds, it doesn't seem like something that played at Sundance specifically. No, yeah. it's, a, it's a studio movie. But the weirdest thing is that um, I heard the publicist talking after is it it was an independent film. And they were looking oh. for a buyer. And I thought, this is crazy. Because if I would have read this script and heard that the Lonely Island guys were involved, I would have bought it in an instant, you know? Um, and it's basically the concept of Palm Springs is it's a time loop comedy. And um, the best part about it is that it starts with Andy Samberg already hundreds of times caught up in the time loop. 
It's not mm. one of those wakes up and discovers it. He's in that. And the, the plot begins with this woman who is, um, I think she's like the sister of the bride. And uh, she's um, kind of catches uh, Andy Samberg's eye at some point, And their interaction is what causes the rest of the plot to play out. And she basically gets stuck in his time loop. And she's really pissed off because she's she's one of these like broken down women who just hates everyone and you know is tired of dealing with people and has her own problems. And Andy Samberg at this point is like totally checked out. He he loves his time loop life. You know he just wakes up every day, drinks beer by the pool every day, watches the wedding go down, and just loves to repeat that. And so that's kind of how it's a romantic comedy about how these two eventually connect and. Um, I think it was David Ehrlich, one of the other critics I know, he said it was like a uh, marriage propaganda film, <laughs> which is it is, but it's also done in this really smart and hilarious way. Um, and it doesn't feel like you're hit over the head with anything, but it's it's also one of the smartest time loop comedies I've seen because I love time loop comedies, sci-fi comedies. And this one takes that concept and it applies really intelligent moments to it. Kind of like Groundhog's Day where you think, He's gone through it thousands of times. Uh, how many? How, how many different philosophical ideas? How many different explorations of different routes can he try? You know, how many different times can he kill himself? How many different times does he learn his lesson doing this and this and this? You know, does he hook up with this guy and that guy? And Palm Springs explores that in a really smart way, of course, with the Lonely Island sensibilities intact, and it's hilarious. Uh, I'll, I'll call it one of my favorite films of the festival, which I find so strange because it feels like it was a Fox movie. Uh, yet here it is playing a Sundance and it's great and it's everyone loved it. I know that I went with everyone had a good time. I think it's going to be I don't want to say it's a breakout of Sundance because it's, you know, Andy Samberg and, and Lonely Island and, you know, but it's one of those films that I think is going to play really well with people um, and could catch just like a huge audience, especially if, once they drop it on streaming. I think I think yeah, Hulu, the, the combination of time loop premise, Lonely Island. I mean, that that seems like a surefire, you know, win to me that said. Yeah, yeah. So did so did their other movies, and while their wins for I guess film Twitter, it's I don't understand how they don't catch on because they're generally yeah. very funny movies. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, another one that's not the same, but I want to talk about with you guys because I think you'll be interested in is this film called Bad Hair. Oh, that's the new Justin um, Simeon. Yeah, I heard about this one. Yeah, I like, yeah. I like Justin Simeon. Yeah, okay. Me too. Me too. From so the director of Dear Black People. That's Justin. Simeon. Yeah. yeah. I saw it on opening day, um, and it premiered very early, which means that after it premiered, it kind of lost its buzz. Um, but I was glad to see it on, on the opening night of the festival. And uh, what I loved about it, and I know a lot of people who didn't like it, and this is why I wish Scott was on here to challenge me on it. <laughs> but um, what, I, what I loved about it is the way that it, it's – I've never seen a movie use uh, black women's hair as a, as a tool for horror. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially about um, it's set in the 80s, I think. Uh, so there's all these like or maybe early 90s. So there's all these kind of um, Janet Jackson references and uh, 80, 90, the, I see now. Yeah, yeah the, the main one. So close to the 90s. Yeah, you're right. The, yeah. the main woman, um, she she's like working in a, a TV station called Cult, <laughs> which is such an obvious yeah. <laughs> literal reference to what it means. And she, as a need to advance her career and make herself beautiful, gets weaves, uh, which I didn't know. And this is kind of what I liked about it. But it's like literally sewn to your hair. A weave. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's not plural. Uh, it's just a weave. But, oh, sorry. Yeah. She, yeah. So so, so the, that moment where they get sewn into her head is like so freaky and disgusting. I mean, they're, they're exaggerating it. 
And then the the it kind of similar to um the the dress movie from last year. I don't know if you guys saw it. I forget In the name Fabric right now. Was the name of that one? Right? Yes. Yeah, I yes. haven't seen it, but not Sim- heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, similar to that movie, the the hair kind of has a life of its own, and <laughs> begins to you know, in a horror movie way, in a cheesy, in a campy horror movie way, begins to, like, kill people. And, I was and... going to ask, what's the yeah. tone like for something like this? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a horror comedy. The tone is, I think, what people had problems with. Because I heard someone say, oh, he's no Jordan Peele. It's just like, yeah, I get it. You know, Jordan is a, a phenomenon, so to say, <laughs> um, in terms of his ability to pull that off. And while I think Simeon's a very talented director... It, 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 the balance of that humor and what's happening, I think, is a little bit bothersome to people. It's also a little bit long. Some of the scenes run too long, and I hope he edits it before it's released. Uh-huh. But otherwise, um, I just thought it's so cool to see hair as the, the killing device and hair as the thing that takes over people's minds. And and it's, it, it is, and this is probably what upsets some people too, it is commentary on beauty. It's commentary on the culture of like beauty and hair and and that being something that causes you to lose control. And basically, um, Simeon said this at the end of the movie, but he said that it's essentially this question of, are you going to sacrifice yourself to progress your career, and you're going to sacrifice your own control of who you are in order to advance yourself? And is that really good? And he he, he kind of works that ambiguity in where there was a woman at the end of my film who asked that question. She's like, I didn't know if the hair was bad or not. What do you think? Yeah. And I was like, well, it's clearly bad hair because it's literally the name of the movie. But at the same time, I think he wanted to carefully not alienate the kind of group and crowd of people who are actually do love putting care into their hair. Um, and I think that's why I also was intrigued by this film is that it's provocative in that sense. I, it's confronting something that people would normally be like, oh, I love my hair. And you're like, wait a minute, hair is bad. I'm interested in this because I am curious to see Simeon's follow-up from Dear Black, dear, sorry, Dear White People. Um, yeah. <laughs> as far as the film goes, he's been working on the Netflix version of, of that show. But um, yeah. it doesn't sound too dissimilar. I mean, obviously, it's different in terms of the content and what it's going after, which I imagine is, like you're mentioning, hair, oneself, and I imagine race plays a big role into it as well, or at least with black women. Specifically. Yeah, um, but it, it reminds me of last year's movie, uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, which was, yeah. uh, which was art coming to life and killing people, yeah. but also in a satirical yeah. kind of way, um, yeah. from the director of Nightcrawler, no less. Um, yeah. But uh, which, but I found that film was not entirely successful in what it was trying to do. It was it had its yeah. moments. It, it it was better when it leaned into the camp stuff more than when it tried to be a serious art commentary because it has that mm-hmm. kind of scene where it's like there's trash on the floor and someone's like look at this art and it's like it's trash and it's like yeah i <laughs> saw that joke coming a mile away yeah um, but, but no but bad it's hair still is. funny yeah I, I mean it's, it's it makes me smile. For a moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a silly joke but it makes me smile um i i know you have a list of films you're going over i want to mention one because i just remembered it um it's the yeah. director of blind spotting carlos lopez estrada uh summertime did you see that film yeah i did yeah. it was also opening night film um it's funny you mention that because this is literally 35 films ago now that I saw it. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I saw I saw 35 films at the festival, and this was the very first one I saw. So um, I would mention it because it's it's not it's um, not a failure, but it it doesn't hit its stride in the way I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's really really cool because what he does is he takes poems and like beat slam moments from a bunch of people in Los Angeles and intertwines everything and kind of connects things in a very slackery way where like someone will give this poetic beat and then a guy will cross the street and the camera will suddenly follow and cross the street with this other guy and then you follow his story and you kind of go around and you learn about these people's different story. 
I think creatively it's great, but the film lacks energy, which is strange because the performances, the poetic performances are awesome. Um, those moments are the best. But the film just needed, it almost needed like a soundtrack to it or something to keep that energy going. Because it, I, and this is just my thought on it. I know, I, I know other people liked it more than I did, but it just, it's just, it's just, it's like so much cool stuff happening. But the whole time I'm like, why am I not feeling excited by this? Um, and you know, the tough thing talking about Sundance films is that I want you to see every single one of these. You know, I want to hear your yeah, take. Sure. On yeah. it. I mean, I'm, I'm not dissuade. Like Abe and I are huge fans of Blind Spotting. Yeah. So, like I, I look forward to seeing what his what Estrada's next movie is going to be. So yeah, but yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've I've heard various opinions about the film, and it does sound yeah, neat exactly. as far as what I've heard and what you've described as far as it's kind of the structure of the film. Like that sounds neat to me. Yeah, yeah, and I I wanted to like it more than I did. I think that's my frustration. Sure. Yeah, with I get that. Yeah. And um and I and honestly before the festival I thought oh this is gonna be one of my favorites I thought it's gonna be the kind of like classic teens hanging out but with a new edge and it just never won me over the ending also with I don't want to give away but with the a bunch of the people coming together just kind of bothered me mm-hmm. uh, it, it, or rubbed me the wrong way um, and then a couple of my friends agreed with me they were like yeah that moment was just a little too not cheesy but just a little went against the the, the the feeling of the rest of the film like these guys are uh these kids are kind of rejecting everything so much and then suddenly you're like wow this is what's happening to them <laughs> but i don't know that's as much as i'll say about it okay because um, okay. the other thing aaron you mentioned it and one of the best parts about this year's festival was how many strong black women films there were i mean i'm talking like half the lineup had this um sylvie's love was about uh tessa thompson playing this woman who falls in love um, in New York City in the 50s, Zola is based on the Twitter story. Um, 40-year-old version, Rada Blank stars as herself in this film. Um, Bad Hair, of course. Uh, there's just this, this great selection of films that, like, I was so happy to see their stories told, but not, the, but not just in a way where I'm like, oh, I'm a white man seeing a black woman's story, but in a way where you're like, these are stories told without it even questioning that it's a black woman. Bad Hair, a great example. So not only is the, the the lead, you know, a black woman in a challenging situation, literally the entire TV station she works at is staffed and run by black women. And in a way, you're like, this is just great to see this naturally presented that way. Mm-hmm. And in a way where it's not a question of race at all. It's just like this is their story and this is the way the plot is going to play out. Um, and that was fascinating and exciting. And that's what Sundance does. They try to say – we want to find films that are not only really talented filmmakers telling really interesting stories, but we want to represent where filmmaking and storytelling should be and how it progresses into the modern world. Um, and everything I've seen in that sense at Sundance this year blew me away. 40-year-old version ended up being one of my favorites. I saw it a few days ago at the end of the festival. Um, and I don't know if you guys know this Rada Blank. She's this like – it's literally about herself. So she's this 40-year-old um, playwright from New York City. Mm-hmm. And the plot of the film is that she's kind of this struggling playwright and no one wants to make her plays. And so she decides to become a rapper or at least try out being a rapper. Yeah. And so she, you know, she goes out and she's actually really good at rhyming and she knows what she's doing. But then she's also kind of pulled back into uh, and this is my favorite part of the film is she's pulled back into writing a play for a rich white dude who is the producer. But he just wants to make poverty porn. And she the whole movie is this commentary on how like white people will only produce black people's projects if it's, uh, you know, 
for the white people's satisfaction in a way. Right, right. And she pushes against that and is like, no, nah, fuck this. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do, you know, uh, eventually she's like, you know, I have to stay true to my voice, which is not to create this story just to satisfy you about gentrification, but just actually here's my story. And I'm just a, a, a woman struggling in New York City. Uh, and it's hilarious. It's authentic. She's so good, and it's shot in 35 millimeter black and white, so it's a little bit different than what you'd expect. And it's just, just damn good. And she pulls the film for all. It's two hours long, so she carries it the whole time. Um, it's just such a strong and exciting debut of a filmmaker. She even explained her story when she was sitting in the Sundance audience last year with her friend Lena Waithe, and Lena was like what can I do to make your film? And Lena went on to produce it. And now we are here a year later without what I think is one of the strongest debuts of the festival. And wow. I film it. I think it just got bought in the last few days. I think I saw it get bought by Netflix. Yeah. 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 And it's like, great, because I, I can't wait for people to see this. I think they're going to love it. I think they're going to see that. Uh, it's a great example of being able to tell whatever the hell story you want and make it good. You know, you don't have to tell a story about, a struggling family or poverty porn or whatever. It's like, no, you can tell a story about a four-year-old woman who wants to become a rapper and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, I meant to ask, the, the other films you've mentioned so far, have they been picked up by anyone? Was Bad Hair picked up by anybody? Yeah, I think I think the deals are coming together like right about now. Okay. Um, Bad Hair, I think I just read about yesterday, was like $8 million for, it might have been Netflix or Hulu or one of those two. Um, clearly there's a game and I'm not, I don't do it anymore on my, my website, but I think slash film has a, a, a sales chart that shows everything that was bought. But clearly what's happening now is everything is Amazon, Hulu, Netflix purchases or even deals with like, yeah, like a Hulu plus someone deal. Um, did Disney and plus, did, did Disney plus go over there and snake out any no. movies? <laughs> I wish, but no. Wow. If Disney it, plus did that, I mean. Pretty is, is Peacock getting any exclusives? Are they? <laughs> I don't gonna... think so. But I Quibi? Honestly... is Quibi is Quibi getting the 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 one with Joe Keery? That makes sense, right? Yeah, it would. <laughs> it's in it, the other interesting thing is like say Fox Searchlight. They used to, or uh, sorry, now Searchlight think... Pictures. <laughs> They're not so long yeah. Fox. <laughs> Um, but they used to come in and buy three or four of the the most buzzed titles every year. Now they brought two that they've already produced, which is Wendy. The follow-up from *Beast of the Southern Wild* director, yeah, Ben's like, um, yeah. yeah, and *Downhill*, the remake of *Force Majeure*. So they already brought two that they produced, and then they ended up buying one of the um, *Midnight* films. I think it's called like *The Night House* or something like this. I guess that is technically Disney Disney Plus coming in just through their their searchlight banner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. That I mean, that thing bothers me. We don't talk about that, but but. The, <laughs> like the big players are no longer buying things that are here they're bringing their stuff that they've already developed mm -hmm. um and that's what's interesting i think the change is like a24 already had uh minari and zola and both of these films they've had before the festival they i think they were involved in producing both of them so um they're presenting them in a way and they're not really buying anything and i think it's because the way the whole culture has changed a lot of these people are able to a lot of these studios and distributors are already looking at these films way before the festival yeah certainly you know? ones like like a24 like smaller studios that are their whole purpose is to you know incur they don't need to go to sundance to find young filmmakers their whole purpose is to do it to begin with so i can, I can exactly. understand that exactly. to a point yeah. where these streaming services yeah that makes a lot of sense to me they want to pick up a lot of content to raise both their esteem and just their collection of things that they can kind of be proud to have because they're from a festival of some kind i i can understand that for sure yeah yeah and that's 
And meanwhile, like I, bigger studios, I imagine, just don't want to shell out the money for that kind of thing because we're in yeah. an environment where it's easier for people to stream things than go to the movies these days, or at least that's kind of the perception. So it's like, yeah. why, why are they going to spend $20 million to promote you know, some movie that's not going to make $20 million back, right? Yeah, there's been a lot of failures in the it last sucks. few years. It sucks. I'm not saying that's yeah. a great idea. It sucks that that's the case that we're in, but I, I, I see where it comes from. Well, the best part <laughs> was that Palm Springs, in clearly a trolling move, um, sold for the highest amount ever at Sundance by 69 cents. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Which yeah. was just, it, was, it used to be, uh, oh, shoot, what was Birth, it? I forget Birth what it was. It was Birth of a Nation. Yeah, for, yeah, for like 17 and a half million. And they sold Palm Springs for seventeen and a half million and sixty nine cents, which is such a like. <laughs> I don't even know if it's real. Like maybe there was a different amount they actually sold for, but that that. I wonder it's probably real. Like, in the same way, like like when Kevin Smith came with Red State and sold it to himself for one dollar. Like I get that. <laughs> <laughs> it's and it's it's fine because it's gonna. I don't know if it's gonna make money back, but it's gonna be worth it in terms of the success it'll have. But like. That was such a – I loved that because that was such a like we're going to troll the news kind of thing. Uh -huh. Like we don't, even, we don't even care what the deal is behind the doors. That doesn't matter. All we're going to do is just prove to the media that 69 cents is a funny way to sell something because everyone, everyone is obsessed with, oh, biggest, day, see, uh, biggest deals and how many, how many millions it's sold for. And at the end of the day, all that matters to me is that people get to see these films. Yeah, no, of course. That's I mean, um, seeing the movie. Oh, question the, for Palm Springs. Did it have that Lonely Islands Classics logo on it? It, it did. I love oh that. Oh, my God. Yeah, because that was from Brigsby Bear where they had the yeah. – and it, yeah. that thing was – that movie was a Sony Pictures Classics film, wasn't it? So it was like double <laughs> yeah. funny because you have the real logo and then you have like – it's still yeah. a real logo, but it's just very specifically spoofing yeah. the Sony Pictures logo. Yeah. <laughs> I want them to keep doing that forever because every time I see that, I'm like, this is great. And no one else – I wish they would change. Change it to the studio that makes like if it's like Lonely Island Searchlight Pictures or something like just whatever like just mock the studio. Yeah. Doing. Well, I would love to see that in general. I'd love to see someone do like A two three or A two two. Like yeah. like just to mess around with it. I mean, maybe they get in trouble, but at the same time, it's like it's so good. And the Lonely yeah. Island guys are brilliant enough to do it. Yeah. It'd be funny. It'd be funny in the same. Not even funny, but just like. It's smile worthy in the same way where you see like Warner Brothers or whatever like have their logo slightly altered based off the film we're seeing. Like I th I I tend to think that's fun. Like that makes me feel like I'm in on the movie already. When yeah. you you know you get a big like Universal logo and the world changes to something crazy or something like it's like all right see we're coming we're having a good time right we're having... yeah <laughs> it, doesn't need to take exactly. the so seriously <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so what i'm saying is uh, netflix just should have like put a bunch of mud on top of mudbound's logo and like he's like see like it's not all terrible <laughs> it's not all sad all the time we can have fun with our stuff <laughs> this is true this is true this makes me want to mention a film that um i don't want to recommend but it came to mind thinking about how absurd stuff is which is this omniboat movie did you guys hear about this omni boat no i didn't <laughs> what is what does that mean <laughs> i mean it sounds really interesting, but also like a terrible idea. It is. It is both of these things. Um, <laughs> it's it's the only film that anyone has ever made with this cr the credit going to based on a PDF. Um, and the, the apparently what I read about it is that um, some people in Miami wanted to buy a speedboat, and so they created this like corporation, and I don't know if it was crowdfunded or something that allowed them to buy it, which was also their way of making a movie, and. It's kind of this anthology feature. It's two hours long, and I do not recommend wasting your time on it. And it's this anthology feature where there's like five or six different directors making segments based off of a speedboat in Miami. And I'll admit that the first 30 minutes is great. This, the opening segment um, with 
there's like an introduction to Miami and that guy trying to sell this house or a condo building. And then the opening segment where like the boat and a truck make love and create a mini boat. Um, that's, the world of cars has come to life. Yeah, it's it's that's nuts. But then the rest of the movie is like, I can't believe this is so dumb. It's just so ridiculous and so stupid and boring at times. And it was it's it's a fascinating experiment in um, uh, unconventional filmmaking <laughs> in every way, the anthology and the aspect, but also just making a movie based on a PDF concept and PDF sales and corporations and how, like, what is the point of this? And I had to see it, and it was so bad. And I, I'm only mentioning it because it's just a, it's a it's a unique piece of work <laughs> that I don't recommend anyone see. But it exists. Believe it or not, you should look it up just because it's like, <laughs> what is this? Omnibo is the name of their movie, and uh, yeah, in the the um, the name of the boat I think was Lay and Pipe. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, and it was just like, what is this? film and it's another one that i'm happy sundance plays because it's just so ridiculous uh but at the same time it wasn't as good as i i really mean alex what do you think it's imdb scores right now off of 16 votes i'm gonna guess like 3.2 7.8 no these people haven't even seen it Dude, that's, it that's also like, has that's IMDb, butchered it. imdb yeah. and like film festival things are always like crazy to me because it'll be you yeah know, like, movies that were like highly acclaimed at a sundance would be like 5.8 and like okay like there's yeah. nothing i can buy here <laughs> I don't know how it got that rating. <laughs> only seventeen or only sixteen people have voted so far, so yeah, we'll see whenever it's released. <laughs> um, well, beyond that, I mean, were there? Um, I mean, we talked about some of your favorites and some of the ones that didn't sit so well. Um, did you agree with the the prize winners? Yeah, for the most part, I actually hadn't seen a handful of them. I I missed, which is you know, it can happen. I can't see everything. Um, uh, I'm trying to look right now what the uh, various winners were, but the the uh, the the Grand Jury Prize Minari I love. Oh, I'll talk about that in a second. But just Boy State I mentioned about the Grand Jury Documentary Prize winner, um, and the Audience Awards, which is what I focus on more than anything. I didn't uh-huh. see the Documentary Audience Award winner, Crip Camp, which is about a a, a camp for a summer Crip camp walking? for disabled teenagers. Uh, no, no. <laughs> But uh, that one's what, like, I would dare to say, of course it won because it kind of appeals to, you know, everyone just feeling good about, you know, a film that shows what this was. And Minari won the audience for, for U.S. Dramatic. The next audience award I also missed, I Carry You With Me, which was uh, apparently about a, um, a gay couple that move, like, uh, they, they're from Mexico, but one of them moves to New York City to kind of start his career. But everyone I talked to said it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that it won based on just the way people love that film. Um, and even just looking at the one photo they released from it, I'm like, I know it's going to be good. I just, I don't know why I skipped it. It just, just never got on my schedule. Um, and then everything else winner wise, it's like, they always do these special jury awards, which are kind of like the, we're not going to give you the top prize, but we think something was great about it. <laughs> uh, so like, like Shirley won for, uh, auteur filmmaking, which is weird because she didn't actually do the screenplay. Um, never, rarely, sometimes, always one, which is Eliza Hitman's new film for neorealism, and it's the film about these two teenagers who are from Pennsylvania, and they one of them needs an abortion, so they go to New York City, and it's a very um, realistic, despite waiting the neorealism or film about how hard it is to to deal with that as young kids. 
Um, uh, this film, Welcome to Chechnya, won for uh, editing. Um, and then Dick Johnson is Dead won the uh, award for innovation in nonfiction storytelling, which is Dick Johnson is Dead is actually great. It's uh, the latest film from Kirsten Johnson, and she's a director who did um, Camera Person. Yeah. yeah which is that she she's kind of moved she used to be a, a cinematographer for documentary she moved into camera person as her debut which was uh, if you guys have seen it's just a collection of um her previous footage put into a film yeah uh dick johnson is dead is her first That's, it's really neat by the way it's on criterion yeah. too like a camera yeah. person is just one i'd really recommend for people to check out but yeah go on sorry well dick johnson is dead i i wouldn't be surprised if it ends up on criterion eventually it's basically uh it's her first like real creation on her own and what she does is she's she, her father, who's uh, 86 years old, is, is she's afraid of him dying, but she addresses this in a really creative way, in a really humorous way, by dealing with – And it, when I saw it, I thought she's taking the concept of have your funeral before you die and running with it in the most extreme and hilarious ways you can possibly do. Mm-hmm. So not only is there literal a funeral – literally a funeral for her father before he's dead, but there's also these moments where she will like um, set up in a narrative, narrative way killing her father. Like the opening shot is a, an air conditioning unit following, falling on her father and killing her. And she uses all these stunt men to do it. And her father will just be like sitting at the side laughing about things. Um, <laughs> and like the funniest thing is I wasn't in a good mood when I saw it. And I'm glad I saw it because I think it's a great film. But I came out of the film and people were just like wiping away tears, like totally broken down, emotionally devastated in a way where it uses humor to address death in a way that we've never seen before. And the way uh, – uh, concept is essentially just like how do you deal with death and also can you celebrate death while that person is still alive you know like hey we're all gonna die but also uh let's recognize just this person's life now and how funny it is that they will die and how much we love them now and also to 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 help remove the pain of death that's sure to come you're gonna have every possible scenario of his death you know, mocked in a movie. <laughs> um, and it's such a crazy concept because you're like, how can they make that into a movie? But she does, and she does it really, really beautifully. Um, and clearly it affects people. And I, I wouldn't be, like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up on Criterion because it's such a unique work of cinema. Um, and I really hope people see it. I think it's going to be a hard one to sell. Like, I don't know how you would get your parents to watch a movie about, you know, someone else's parents being killed, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you, you could try. Yeah. Did you see um, Promising Young Woman? I did. Um, I did. <laughs> it's <a> tough, <laughs> well, it's a tough one to talk about because there's uh, things that happen in it that we're not supposed to reveal. That was another one that was making a lot of headlines with Carrie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll talk about it for a minute because it was the one where the director before the movie said to the audience, please don't spoil the movie. You know, Don't give away the plot points later. And it's not, that it's like, it's not like a major thing happens. It's just like the reveal of what happens as it plays out. You want to you wanna keep that fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, hear, I hear you. Yeah. Um, while I like a lot of the movie, what bothered me personally me about it is that it, I think it plays it safe in it. Um, no, like Joker. Yeah, no. <laughs> in a different way and i almost don't want to say it because i won't be no it's fair you don't you don't have to go too far into it i was just curious yeah, if you saw it. it's just it's just i love so much about it i actually think um carrie mulligan is better than the filmmaker like she understood the story better oh, like than joker <laughs> actually, actually, no that's a fair comparison there <laughs> Um, and it, and it, that allowed Carrie Mulligan's performance to actually be separate from what the film was doing. Uh-huh. And it kind of bothered me in that the film didn't go as 
far as I thought it should and could, even though it's very provocative for a lot of it. Um, and the ending just doesn't sit well with me. I'll say that. And um, the weird thing is that everyone I know loved it. Male and female critics loved it. And it's one of their favorites of the fest. And it's to me, it's like, I, I think it's really good. It just, um, something about it kept me feeling like it wasn't truly as great as it could have been. And I know I feel like I'm the only one who says this about it, but um, it will it will be huge when it opens. I guarantee. Because I know it's a, I yeah. think it was hitting headlines just because of like the Harvey Weinstein trial stuff is happening. That a movie, yeah. The Assistant, came out this week, and so here's another movie that's dealing yeah. in similar territory, not necessarily the same exact stuff. But uh, that's yeah. why I think it was like hitting headlines a lot this week. No, that's that's exactly the point. It will it will be talked about for that reason. It will be mm-hmm. talked about the way it handles that. It is kind of a revenge fantasy against men, okay. um, and. And also just an, a, a, a bold way to address the rape culture that, that you know, we're afraid to address. Um, but as to where people fall and how, how it handles that, you have to see it. It's a great film for you guys to discuss on the podcast because you're going to talk about it for like an hour and a half. And, and um, there's a lot of style to it that makes it interesting in terms of the way Carrie Mulligan looks and handles things. And yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's not my favorite, but it's still a worthy film that will end up with a lot of conversation. Yeah. Um, if you have any other films you can bring up, feel free to. I want to ask one real quick. Do you do you get yeah. to see any shorts at the at the Sundance? I don't have time. I would love to. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't have time because I'm always you know going to features all day long. It's actually one of my least favorite things. Is I would love to go to the short programs. I know that Sundance is also known for programming some of the best shorts, and I know they're great. Um, I wish that they would do, I hope one day the festivals will just finally give in and just put them online, you know, mm-hmm. be like, look, look, we'll have a premiere. And then the next day you should be able to watch them online because it's like no one in the industry watches shorts for any other reason than like challenging, like seeing what a filmmaker can do and then giving them a better job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, short films are great, and there's thousands of them every year, but at the same time, every time I watch one, I'm like, oh, this is really great, but what does this do other than prove to me that this person's talented and maybe work in some really interesting message, which I've already forgotten because it was 10 minutes long, and a film... That's not entirely fair. There's plenty... I mean... They... Like what, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> what do you Name mean, like a what? a short film. World of Tomorrow. Uh, that's like the best example you could possibly give. <laughs> you asked me to name one. <laughs> I know, but you're naming like one of the best short films ever made. The Wrong Trousers. <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> Blake Park? Wall Street Yeah. Well, another great example is, um, uh, I, I keep calling it bad hair, but it's not bad hair. But the other, the other hair one, it was nominated for uh, an Oscar this year. Um, this year? Oh, um, I've seen all the short films. Um, the animated hair love yes hair love yes the other hair short um that one is a great example of a film that i think not only does what i say which proves it but also is a really beautiful story all of pixar's shorts that they made in part of their spark shorts programs are phenomenal yeah those are really interesting that's a different topic of discussion but it's really neat to see filmmakers that are specifically from a more diverse crowd that are tackling things involving race or especially abled kids i mean there's a lot of really neat things coming out of that specific program because it gets to be a little bit more mature than the things that they show before their main features in theaters. Um, yeah, it's, I, there's a, there's a longer conversation about shorts in general, but I do think yeah. there's value in them. And I don't think the filmmakers are 
just sitting there wake, waiting to be plucked out of obscurity so they can make some giant blockbuster. Many no, 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 short, of course. Many short filmmakers love making short films. That's what they do. I mean, that's, that's yeah. I just have this weird feeling where after you know 14 years of being at festivals and hearing about shorts and watching a lot of them, I just it's like where do they go? You know, one of my problems is like where do you go? Where does the short end up after it is played at festivals and been released? A lot of them do well, end up. It gets on to be their YouTube, film that they right? have, and then they make their next movie, just like any other filmmaker. I mean, it's great <laughs> yes, to receive plaudits and awards or what have you, but I mean, they're still it's still a job. They're just going to go to the next job. Right, but I'm saying that that's proving my point. What I'm ultimately saying is like, I wish I could go on iTunes and just anyone's short film and be like, oh, I want to buy this person's short film. Well, in terms for of distribution cents, or access, I can agree with you. I mean, yes, it'd be great to just have a convenient way to get not just some yeah. shorts, but all the shorts or be able to look up like, you know, some obscure director who made this one thing, but made this thing 15 years ago. And be like, yeah, exactly. I can just pop onto iTunes and grab it. That'd be great. I don't disagree with you there whatsoever. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I see where you're saying as far as the notoriety of a big studio film is going to, you know, allow it to be in the public's consciousness a lot more than a short film. But yeah. I'm not thinking a short filmmaker who receives very plot, various plotters or what have you <laughs> is sitting there thinking, man, I wish somebody could rent my movie at iTunes right now. Like, I just think I don't think that's their concern. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I I think that's also why I feel so ashamed of it is I'm like, I wish I had time to actually watch these films at the festival. I never, ever do. Every festival has them. Even can has short films. I just never have time to watch any of them. I'm happy to discover them later in the year. Sure. And that's always exciting because there's always something from Sundance that ends up online at some point or another. Um, and I'll, actually, horror shorts are some of my favorites. Uh, yeah. At Sitches last year, I saw a handful of them, and I'm like, these are fantastic, and I can't wait for them to end up online because I want to share them with everyone. Well, I mean, uh, if there's one thing we like to do on this podcast, it's shame you about what you haven't seen. I mean, that's just a big part of the show, right there. And I can tell you right now, I, I can tell you right now. When, when, I was just gonna send you the link right now. When when Anna listens to this, I'm sure she'll be scowling through you talking about short films. But I mean, the, the, the well, but uh, regardless, were there any other movies for you, you Alex? Talk about? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, no. The other one I really want to mention because I mentioned it, but I haven't talked about it, is Minari. The the oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just it won. It's the big winner of this year. It won both awards, which is that's not rare. But um, like Precious was the one that did that one year and was kind of the the major movie of the moment. Oh, you mean the uh, one based off a novel pushed by Sapphire? Yes, yes, that's that one. Uh, <laughs> Are you sure about that one, Aaron? It won both awards that there. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. No, it's actually Lee Daniels. Lee Daniels Precious based off a short Thank film by, short novel by, by, by Sapphire. Exactly. We go for full titles. Yeah, get it correct. Um, Minari is, uh, I think his name is Lee Isaac Chung, and he's a Korean-American filmmaker, and it's kind of one of these, he's mining his own past to make a film about him, but not, you know, but it's a feature now. And it's basically about this uh, Korean-American family that moves from California to um, Arkansas and starts a farm. The father, played by Steven Yeun, like, wants to start a farm, and his wife does not. <laughs> and so he moves there, and they buy this, like, plot of land, and... Um, the first things first is that it's not at all dark or or depressing. It's a really happy, uplifting film. Is it coming that, of age or just like family? Well, the main drama, there's two parts of it. Uh, the main boy, who's this like six or seven year old kid or maybe five year old, he's this he's the heart of the film. So it's not coming of age for him because he's too young for that. But uh, it's him kind of dealing with that life, the rural life, and then also their grandma shows up. And she kind of provides the uh, opposite foil to the to the the young boy because 
she, uh, you know, in Asian families, that's an important part of having all the family together. But she just like sits at home and watches wrestling on TV all day long. Uh, and the boy kind of gets into all this trouble. And at first they don't like each other, but they, they eventually learn, like the grandma eventually learns to gain his trust and become a, a, a good grandma while also the father struggles to maintain this farm. Um, and it's just a really beautiful film and a really like uplifting film. There's this like happiness to it that even though they're struggling to deal with this farm, that you just feel good about them. And that, I think that's why I won all the awards. It's just like, it just shows you that even though there are struggles in life, that that family connection and the value of being together and, and working on everything is part of what makes strong families, part of what represents the, the beauty of life in a way. Um, and it's just, it's just such a fresh example of filmmaking that is something we don't see much of nowadays, but is doing it in a really outstanding way. And I think that's also why it stands out as a film is it, it just proves that, um, you, you know, we can do something that you're not expecting and also still create a film that will be, I would dare to say a classic, you know, in, in time. And this will probably end up on Criterion eventually too. Um, and also one of my other favorite parts about it is there's a, a white character uh, played by Will Patton. Okay. And he's this kooky farmer who lives nearby and suddenly starts helping them on the farm. And one of my favorite things that I'm going to get in trouble saying this, I'm sure, is that uh, he flips – the filmmaker flips the, the idea of religion being something to mock. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Religion being mocked from Asian religion to uh, American religion. So typically in, in so many films in American history, they've taken Asian religion like – you know, um, incense and all these things, and they make fun of it and like, uh, oh, what are you doing? You're getting the spirits out. Well, now they use Christianity and they mock that. And he, he's this kooky Christian dude who uh, there's literally every Sunday he carries a cross down the road on his shoulders. And they, they it's not a, a mocking in a bad way, but it, I, I loved how they flipped the religion. So instead of the Asian family being the ones with kooky religion, it's now the American the kooky religion take that grand yeah. torino <laughs> and it's it's so it's the whole film is just so unique and so um i don't know just it's just such a light and enjoyable film despite yeah. being about struggles and it's just uh the themes are, are are worked in in a really smart way um there's an obvious ending but it doesn't bother me um and, it, and the fact that it won both awards is great because it deserves them and of course, we're now in this. I'm trying not to mention it, but now I have to. We're now in this era with the farewell, proving that Asian American stories are worthwhile um, and that they deserve to be in the forefront more. I mean, even Parasite, like, be- like modern modern yeah. Asian American stories, mm. as opposed to like you know like feudal China, things like that, or whatnot. Exactly. exactly. Alex, yeah. on behalf of all Asians everywhere, we want to say thank you for recognizing <laughs> this. No, I'm, I'm, dude, I'm, I fully admit I'm the, the typical straight white dude here talking about everything. And it, <laughs> it gets me nervous because I don't want to say something that I'm going to be like, oh, wow, you're totally wrong. And like, for example, this Zola film about the, the Twitter, based on the Twitter fight, um, that film, a lot of white critics were being called out because they were saying, they were calling it like crack filmmaking or something like that. Or like, you know, these, these really ridiculously clearly racist ways to describe a film mm-hmm. and it's like 
like I know how they can slip up into that because you're kind of caught up in the moment of what it is. And then, but then if you step back and you're like, well, actually, it's just a film about a a woman who gets caught up in this crazy situation, and that you're you're really overdoing that. And I think that's the the reason why it's great to have such a diverse set of voices at Sunday and it's a diverse set of critics at Sunday is that um, it's not just the white man's take; it's everyone else's take too. And I want to hear all of this. The, apparently, and I haven't read all the reviews yet, but apparently a lot of um, black critics hated bad hair. And they think it's crap. And I'm like kind of nervous. I'm like, well, why did I like it? Like, what did I do? <laughs> what, why am I supportive of this when apparently I've, I'm not supposed to be? I don't know. It's, 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 it's never about supposed to be. I know what you're saying because I get caught up in that situation too where I see certain yeah. movies that represent a certain side of things or present think, commentaries on social topics. Like Three Billboards, I think, was one that got heavily caught up in uh, that. Yeah. And I, I love Three Billboards. It was one of my favorite mm. movies of the year. And it, it it's amazing to think of and the thing is, I think it also comes down to a generation thing. And it's not to say, like, I just I can I can read an older generation better than others can or anything like that. But I do think that there was a younger set that was, like, specifically opposed to three billboards because it's just more like because it's messy as opposed to some kind of perfect screed on how um, uh, the racial divide is set up or things like that. It's like it, it, it can't be that. It has to be perfect in how it adheres to all these different ideas and what it wants to say. And it's just like, life isn't like that sometimes. I mean, it's and you can't have the same opinion about everything that you see. You're talking about exactly. like, like bad hair. It's like, I mean, it seems from what you've described and what I've heard about it, it seems like a film that's actively trying to be divisive. Like, it's not going to yeah. be something that's like going to have you rooting for it entirely just because it's a movie that's addressing a certain topic. It seems like one that's designed to provoke conversation, which a lot is what a lot of Sundance dramas and movies that aren't, you know, specifically like something like Minari. It seems like that's a lot of it. You should be yeah. able to have, have a conversation involving the different merits of something as opposed to just being like, yeah, it's great, move on. Like Exactly, exactly. I think the worst problem is more people who like completely rejects even seeing a film because it's something that doesn't doesn't is, is like a different race or a different culture than them at all you know that's the thing like if someone's like well i'm not an asian american why would i see minari i'm like come on that's the most ridiculous that's not thing a reason ever. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anything like that, it's that like more that should be more of a reason you got plenty of exactly. white guy movies you can see all the time when are you going to see something like minari again <laughs> like... yeah exactly and the, and the and the beautiful thing about parasite is that it is truly universal and it's like as a korean film set in korea dealing with a very specific korean social issue but also everyone around the world no matter where you are from, what country you are from, can understand it and, and deeply appreciate what it is showing and the themes of social structure and, and, and inequality that it's addressing. And I think a lot of Sundance films do that, where, like, yes, bad hair is specifically about black women's hair, but it's also about beauty in general. And we can all understand and appreciate that commentary that it's having there. Whether or not I will ever get a weave is, a, you know, not something that is a, a, an issue with me, but at the same time, I understand the concept of what it's doing. And I appreciate that now I learn about weaves and how the heck they work and how, mm-hmm. how crazy they are. I mean, that was actually listening to the Q and a, I think Justin Simeon addressed that. He's like, uh, I'm glad that people are now learning about this. And I'm glad that, you know, people who had no idea that this is what a lot of black women went through with their beauty and with their hair are now understanding that this is part of the culture that they, they had no concept of to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. And it, again, I think that's what I love about Sundance is that discovery on a scale across everything. These these truly unique and different films. Um, actually, this makes me want to mention another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because it, it, this one I had heard about, and I watched it at the beginning of the festival, um, and I as a screener, and I was totally blown away by it. It's called "The Mountains Are a Dream That Call to Me." 
Um, and it's set in Nepal. And I love Nepal, so that's what I was drawn to. Uh, and it's made by um, a filmmaker who was raised in Canada, though he's not particularly Nepalese. But he he had an experience when he first went to – at least I, I think he's from – I don't know where exactly he's from. His name is Cedric Chung Lao. Um, and when I when I talked to him, I think he said he was raised in Toronto or something. I don't know. I'm probably getting that all wrong. But nonetheless, he's not Nepalese, but he went to Nepal one time and he made a film. And the film was about – um, an aging Australian woman who has lost, it seems to be her husband, although it's kind of vague. And she's on a trip to Nepal, hiking through the Annapurna circuit. And she meets a, a young Nepalese guy who, after growing up in Nepal, is trying to leave Nepal. And it's um, this really uh, simple, minimalistic film where it's made up of basically four, three, four-minute-long pans across the landscape and static shots of them in a particular place hiking. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's not a lot of conversation. It cuts around it, but it's just as a work of art, it's phenomenal. And it just stunned me and got deep into my sense of like, wow, I love seeing something that is made so differently than I expected that addresses two different cultures that I'm not familiar with. I mean, Australian, you know, sort of. Right. And then also, uh, it's just a film that, like, you can't forget. Just the imagery and the, and, you know, there's only, like, a couple of scenes of actual dialogue in it. But those scenes, just, they, they stick with you. And they stick in your mind. And I love that kind of discovery at a festival like Sundance. And I love that the, these festivals dig deep to find not just a good film, but a film that is really, um, I don't want to say just unique, but, but, uh, completely a different representation of culture in, in the world that we know and tries to show us something different and tries to get us to learn more about the world. Because if there's any place to do that, it's like bring these films to, you know, Park City, Utah and show us these while we're all here together at this moment and let us be moved by these experiences. And that's what Sundance is great at. And they, they, they're, they're a key festival for that reason. As we wrap up here, just a quick question for you. Sure. In terms of like your own personal goals, did you see more movies than you were trying to see, or just <laughs> anything? Anything that, that for a personal goal, what did you take away? Well, to, I mean, to answer your question specifically, I always try to get to thirty films. Okay. Um, and I hit thirty-five this year. Uh, Damn. Mostly, mostly because like the first four days, I was doing five in a day. Um, and it screwed me up because I didn't, I'm still behind on my reviews right now. I'm still writing four or five of them this week. Uh, and I, I'm happy I achieved that because part of my concern as a Sundance is I don't want to leave having missed certain films. And the worst part is then when you have to wait a year or more sometimes to catch up with these. Um, because sometimes they can like, I was going to reference this film burden. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Um, this film Burden premiered at Sundance in 2018, so two years ago. Yeah, I heard of this movie. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and it won the Audience Award, so it won a major award, and it still isn't released yet. It comes out in March, I think. Mm. Uh, and it's like, it's not that it's something I need to see, but the fact that something can take two, two and a half years to be released from when it originally premiered at Sundance um, kind of makes it tough because I, you know, I'm a movie nerd who wants to see everything now. And I just want to see things just to get a sense of what they are and know the films and help promote them when they're being released. And that's always the thing. As Sundance is like, I just want to get as much as I can in while I'm here. I don't want to miss the major ones because then I feel like I missed something major. 
And at the same time, I'm always going to miss something. I missed a lot of the horror films people were talking about. Um, I saw only one of the midnight horrors other than bad hair. And, uh, yeah, it's just a matter of catching up with everything now. And, you know, I, I miss the other next audience award winner. Um, the, uh, I carry you with me film. And it's like, yeah, I, I can't get everything, but the most I can do is just the, what, what I love doing most is just committing myself to the films. You know, I'm not there for the parties. I'm not there for, I do one interview, uh, I'm really just there to see as much as I possibly can. And that involves literally spending all day going from a theater to food to the queue and then waiting in the queue to get back in a theater nonstop all day, every day. That's my life for <laughs> 10 days. And I'm sure everyone who's been to festivals is like, yeah, I know what you mean. Occasionally you'll take a break and like do some writing, but it's literally just like food to cinema and back and then to bed. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie. That sounds like pretty and, and for at least a day <laughs> yeah it is it is so right. well yeah well thank you alex very much for sharing your yeah alex, thanks for the, the sundance recap yeah no thank you for uh, letting we'll me be talk. able to afford plane tickets to go there and then get tickets to the actual festival itself and then we'll just all be friends together <laughs> on, on, in the utah that'd be great, <laughs> that'd be great. drink your drink your water and make sure you got your oxygen and you're good to go <laughs> Well, very cool. Uh, where, as we kind of wrap up your segment here, where can people find more of your work online, including all your Sundance reviews? Um, at firstshowing.net, as always, um, and on Twitter at firstshowing. And I would I would love to mention this because now it's a new thing, but on Letterboxd at firstshowing. <laughs> because, because I do a tweet, and then I elaborate in Letterboxd, and then I write a full review. So it's, it's a trio now of, of reviews. Got it. It's a three. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, very cool. Uh, thank you very much again. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to having you back next time to talk yeah. about the other bullshit we want to get into. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, too. Yeah. Well, for sure, man. Thanks, Thanks again. Thanks, Alex. Bye. See you guys. Ciao. Safe travels back. Thank you. Bye. All right. So that was our Sundance recap. Thanks again to yeah, Alex thanks Billington. Again, Alex. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um we got some other things we can still take care of before we kind of end this bonus up. Let's uh, let's do uh, let's do some out now quickies. Yep. Great, Mark. All right, uh, Abe. Have you seen any other movies? This it's week? very, it's very fortuitous that Alex Billington mentioned Six Underground and how we were talking about, excuse me, Netflix and and kind of like some of the holds or the notes that a pretty uh, a movie studio would give you. And when I'm watching Six Underground, it is Michael Bay, yes, for sure, just in terms of the explosions, the cuts, and whatever else. In terms of the story, I was wondering, did Michael Bay like have a story credit or whatever the case Michael is? Michael Bay and, is not right. He's, yeah, he's he not doesn't story write, But <laughs> when, when I watched this movie, I was like, this movie is is one of the reasons that uh, you know I can see why it was you know bought by Netflix. But then it has a lot of issues with the pacing because it's sometimes too quick and sometimes too slow, and it has a lot of issues with the storytelling. Like it's it's strangely giving you backstory on these six, seven people who are all named one, two, three, four, five, six, um, and then seven, I guess, later. But it, it is very nonsensical to begin with. It takes like 30 or 40 minutes for the entire movie to get started because everyone has to get, is given like a backstory about why they've become these these operatives that are dead, you know. And it's uh, overall, it's super choppy in terms of the editing, and the story just kind of really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but six underground, there you go. It's on Netflix. Yeah, I had, 
the exact same issue with the I can see what because it's from the writers of like Deadpool and you have Michael Bay and you have Ryan Reynolds like I see where all that combines and I think the opening I can see why he would like why Bay was attracted to it because like yeah it opens up a car chase and there's all this exhibition given what? out but there's a car yeah. chase going on the whole time that's cool and I there I in theory I like that I don't mind the idea of like yeah okay you just have like a really cool car chase and you just kind of fill in you know bits of information here and there but it does take forever it really yes. like it starts on the wrong foot the wrong pacing it takes a good 45 minutes to an hour before i was really like in the rhythm of the movie yeah At, yeah after that i was actually into the rhythm of the movie i do think it has some neat action stuff going on there's some clever ideas for set pieces one involving magnets another involving a giant penthouse so it's yes. like there's some cool stuff there i think the cast is having fun but yeah, it does feel it does feel long, and it does feel like Bay hasn't evolved that much compared to some of his. Well, other not films. not for this one, yeah. Uh-huh. But I mean, yeah. we we've talked about it on the show sure. some of the evolutions of Michael Bay and how we like the something like Thirteen Hours or you know something like Pain and Gain, where it's like oh you know when he wants to like be uh, when he wants to be a different Michael Bay, he can be. But for this one, it, it is um, it's. I didn't know that there were the writers of Deadpool, yeah. but you can definitely get that sense because there's stupid jokes that come in and out um, that are executed by, by Ryan Reynolds and his team. Um, by stupid, I mean just like they're having a serious conversation about something, and all of a sudden they pan over, and it's just this Asian guy eating noodles, and like, good job on the security detail, and they just leave. It's like, this is not funny. Like, it, it's it's like... It's cheap humor, is what I should say. I, I think not... that the mo- the most evident is during that car chase, where you're like, I really want Dave Franco to die, and he does, but I mean, it's like <laughs> in a terrible way. <laughs> it but it's like it's this character's so horrible. Like I don't want to like have this person around for most. And I like Dave Franco for yeah. the most part, but it's I, like... I like Dave Franco too. <laughs> but it's and like then... it seems like he's going out of his way to be like the worst character in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and I, I that sort of is attributed to the editing of this. Yeah. car chase you know what i mean like if it was more cohesive i think i might feel for dave franco a little bit more but then when it when it, whatever happens does happen to him i'm just like okay yeah, all right. yeah. i mean i saw him in the trailer but i also saw um uh, what's his face corey uh, yeah cory hawkins in the trailer too and i was like he's clearly not here right now so yeah. i guess he'll be later <laughs> um, so that was six underground yeah i uh, saw one of the new releases of the week gretel and hansel it's huh? a horror film adapted from the, or like inspired by the grim fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel, obviously. It's from director Oz Perkins, or Osgood Perkins, his full name, uh, son of Anthony Perkins. Uh, Norman, really? Norman Bates, yes. Yeah. He's um, he's done a couple films that I really like, or one film I really like, at least. There's uh, the, the Black Coat's Daughter, which I talked about before. Yes. Um, it's a cool A24 film. Um, I believe it's on Netflix right now, actually. Uh, very stylish. Same with the... Uh, the film he did as a follow-up to it, which is on, which is also on Netflix for sure, because it's a Netflix movie. Um, I am the pretty thing that moves, lives in the house. I believe it's called. It's a long title. Scary um, title. But both those films are really great with their atmosphere and style and mood. So that's why I was mainly excited for with this movie because I'm like, oh, cool, he's got like a bigger budget to work with, although it's still five million dollars, but it's got a wide release. So it's like, all right, let's see what that does for him. And overall, it's okay. That said, okay. the 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 stuff I wanted to see, I got out of this movie. It's very stylish. It's very moody. It looks fantastic. It made me think of Malick, honestly, in the way it's presented it a lot of times. There's what? A lot of, there's a lot of like the way he's. So he chooses a uh, it's a what is it one fifty five aspect ratio. So it's kind of boxy. Oh, okay. Uh, so it has that going, and like it's a weird way of 
immersing you into like being closer to the viewer to the to the character as well as giving you kind of this unique take on the landscape it's yeah. shot mainly in ireland i believe and like the the way you have there's a lot of symmetry there's a lot of like interesting ways to use the camera here and it looks fantastic so you have like i mentioned malik because it has this kind of dreamy sense of presence but you also have these characters that are kind of in close-up a lot mm-hmm. so you it's like it feels grand like i don't know how else to describe it but for a moody atmospheric horror film it has a great presentation i was really into like how it was structured mm-hmm. um i and the i mean just telling you the story of hansel and gretel obviously it's very much focused on the gretel character she plays the older sister to hansel this time around she's like 16 hansel's like eight and it's giving you this it, it wants to have this kind of female empowerment message going through it as far as Gretel being a woman in medieval times who's smart enough to know that her place in life is not ideal and she wants to basically get the hell out of there. So and in the in the process of this she has her brother she has to take care of as well. They meet up with this witch who they don't know is a witch at first and they kind of get taken to her house and they start uh-huh. kind of trying to like make a living out of that and things take a turn obviously because it's a witch um alice <laughs> krieg plays the witch and she's quite good like it's a really off kilter type of performance that you need for a witch character that has to like be both charming and menacing at the same time um i the story overall is just not great that's my issue okay. it, it doesn't leave you with much of an impact as far as where the narrative takes you there's not much surprise because you partially because you know the grim fairy tale but also because it just doesn't end on a note where you're like yeah that really did it for me but oh interesting i will say that beyond the atmosphere the the recommendation comes from just the presentation itself i think that's really great but the other thing i will say it really works on a like i mentioned last year like scary stories in the dark i feel like that's a film that works for like a transitional audience that's going from like younger skewing genre horror films to older you know more yeah I think it works in that way where like this can take you from being a younger, you know, being a teenager or what have you and watching certain kinds of horror films and taking you into like indie horror because it very much feels like a like the witch light like a24 is the witch like in a right. like the, the vivage yeah yeah exactly yeah because it's pg-13 it's not very graphic or anything it's not, I mean it has some eerie stuff in there and there's one scene involving human organs that's actually pretty gross but but i but i but i could see like a younger crowd that like is interested in the indie art house kind of scene i could see them looking at this one as a good stepping stone to get to more art art house horror type Mm, things okay so like on that level i do think it's worth beyond just the like the construction of the film because i think that's pretty impressive on the filmmaking level i think in terms of what audience is seeing that i do think a younger crowd would probably find something to appreciate about it if they're into this kind of horror so Mm, yeah, okay. Uh, that's Gretel and Hansel. That's 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 the that's the kind of recommendation I can give for that film. There you go. And it's for a January horror film, which there's been many of um, this year. Usually there's like one or two. This year you had The Grudge, The Turning, that other one I can't think of right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, when you're saying like The Grudge, I was like, not good. The yeah, Turning, not good. The Turning, not good. not good. And then like the other one that you couldn't remember is like so, probably not I, good. Some, yeah, probably not good. Underwater, which is fine. Oh, uh, you guys talked about that. Yeah, it was fine. Um, and now this movie, it's like, there's a lot, that's a lot of horror movies, <laughs> per usual. But yeah, so that's Gretel and Hansel. Um, okay, that's out of quickies. Yeah. Let's move on to, we have something of an epic trailer to talk about. Oh my here. gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> so oh my. let me, let me set this up for you. Yeah. The, in the past few years, or the past, sorry, the past few entries of the Fast and Furious franchise, it, the, the franchise is so strong that they can have like events for their trailers, which is crazy to me. For Fast 7... For, sorry, Furious 7, they had a red carpet premiere for just the trailer. 
for 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 the the eight of the furious they did something similar they didn't do anything for Hobbs and Shaw because that's a spin-off this movie they announced ahead of time they're gonna have a concert in Miami to build up to the trailer of this movie which they did on Friday afternoon um the the 31st they had a concert with with Ludacris and Wiz Khalifa singing the Paul Walker died song Mm -hmm. like they had all this stuff they had the whole cast there and they finally introduced the trailer for the movie so like in in, in and of itself it's like this is insane that fast of of all the franchises out there Fast and Furious is the one where it's like yeah we're strong enough to not only premiere a trailer online we'll have a damn concert to go with it before and people love that Fast and Furious franchise now Mm mm-hmm um, so with all that said, we then got the trailer and yes. this movie, it's fast nine. The, or, sorry, sorry. I'm wrong. The title is F nine colon the fast saga. That is the, that is the, that is the title of this movie, <laughs> which is, a, it, it's so like wonderful that this franchise has gone out of its way to be crazy with its sequel titles. Cause you look at all of them in a row and it's like, this is, they, this is they don't make any sense. Yeah, this, yeah. This, is, this is insanity, <laughs> and it's and it's still and it's not only is it like has it worked for the franchise, it's only gotten bigger since like the fifth yeah. one. <laughs> like, it's, it's I think somebody insane. put together all the titles back to back to back like yeah. on the same screen on Twitter, yeah. and I was like, this is a, yeah, this is stupid. Yeah, friend of the show Brad Omen put that on there. Oh, okay. and it was like it's so insane <laughs> that all of these are different titles for one series. <laughs> but anyway, Justin Lin's back. He took the he took a nice. oh, he took an entry or two off. Uh, to do some Star Trek and whatnot. Now he's back doing the ninth entry in this franchise. We have Probably been one of the better Star Trek reboots as well. Yeah. Nobody saw it. It, it got seen less, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vin Diesel is back. Michelle Rodriguez, Tyrese, Chris Ludacris Bridges, Jordana Brewster, uh, Natalie Emmanuel. All of them are here. This time <laughs> we're adding John Cena on because we, we lost The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's a there's a blood feud now between Vin Diesel. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get we'll get we'll talk we'll talk about what's going on in the trailer in a second. I just want to lay this cast out. We got John Cena yeah. back, and I'm not gonna I'll take the other one for the for later. We got John Cena, Charlize Theron's back as the vil, the cipher. Helen Mirren's involved still as well. There's apparently a lot of t- Tokyo Drift cast members in here. I hear Lucas Black is supposed to be back in this one. I mean, I'd be I'd be excited about that. Yeah, we got some of the other. Um, we got a glimpse of one of the other guys in Tokyo Drift. He was in there. Mm-hmm. I, I believe Michael Rooker has a small role in this film as well. So, like, this movie's... I, you may I have been your father, I can only, wasn't your daddy. I can, only, <laughs> I can only assume that Kurt Russell <laughs> might be back in some capacity, because that's always fun. Michael Rooker has to be... Oh, we'll, we'll talk about this later. We'll talk about like, it, yeah. Like, soon, yeah. Okay. So, let's, t- let's talk about this trailer. Uh, <laughs> we... we I'm sure we both wanted to, like, who's John Cena playing in this movie? He's just, like, another big, like, agent of some kind or whatnot? Yeah, I was thinking, like, oh, he's another, like, federal, like another, like, oh, lawman kind of thing. Yeah. No. Not true. He's a master thief slash assassin slash high-performance driver who is also <laughs> Vin Diesel's brother. His estranged brother. He's coming the... <laughs> Younger brother. Younger brother. <laughs> yeah, younger. <laughs> because he's like, oh, you're always trying to be better than your big brother kind of thing. And I guess uh... I call Jordana Brewster's brother, too. So, so like, yeah, because they're, they're, they're related. So, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> so Vin Diesel, Jordana Brewster, and John Cena are all related now. That's what we got in this movie. It's got to be. Yeah. And you know how I knew that he was uh, Vin Diesel's brother? How? Because he's got a necklace. Mm-hmm. He wears a necklace and his hair is like slicked back. But this is what I love about this trailer, or about Vin, Vin Diesel in general. Vin Diesel is ethnically ambiguous, <laughs> so you could choose anybody to be his dad. Yes. 
and his brother. Like, what I'm thinking about the Michael Rooker thing is, Michael Rooker's their dad. He, he's just like, hey, boys. No, his dad like, died. His dad, because he saw... He, we, no, that's what you think. We st- <laughs> <laughs> They're retconning everything, Aaron. They're going to have a barbecue. Michael Rooker's there. He didn't die. He had to kill himself because he's a secret agent. We're getting off the rails here. <laughs> it, he, <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, they, I mean, the, the, the lore, the lore of the series is that, like, Dom saw his dad die in a big car explosion and whatnot. Like, that was he saw Letty die in a car explosion, too, didn't he? I know, this series does have a penchant for, and there's another character who died in a car explosion that we're about to talk about, but yes, oh. there's a penchant for explosions that happen that people don't seem to die from. Regardless, yeah, there's a lot going on here. And so we get all, we get all the stunts and everything, we see cars flipping around, where they're driving in the jungle, apparently, at some point, which... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's like an fu to the rock making the uh, the uh, Jumanji movies. What I like about this trailer, besides the plot stuff, is that it seems like Justin Lin's like recharged. Like whatever break he needed to take from this series, yeah. he's back and he's doing some what looks like pretty cool stuff. No matter no matter how ridiculous it is, because that's par for the course at this point. The ninth entry in the Fast and Furious franchise, it just looks like he has some neat ideas he wants to like go with as far as far as like the car stunts in this movie. Like I was. I mean, there's a part where, like, a bridge is blowing up, and they're driving on the bridge still, and I'm like, that's not how gravity works, but who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly my first touch. I was like, that's, that car is gone. <laughs> uh, I agree with you on Justin Lin, though, because Justin Lin, he, like we've discussed on the show, he's revamped it with Tokyo Drift, but then he also made, arguably, the best movie of the franchise, which is Fast Five. Mm-hmm. Um, and... For this one, yeah, when I'm looking at the trailer, there's definitely Justin Lin-isms in there, which is clear shots of racing, clear shots of, like, action. Um, there's even a part where they, they kind of mimic something in Dark Knight with a, a trailer flip. Yeah. And I was like, I, that doesn't look practical, but at the same time, I appreciate that you thought of it and put something in there. So I know that um, – who, who's, uh, who's the guy who directed Insidious? James Wan. James Wan. I know that James Wan had some limited, limit, 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 limited, limit, ugh, limitations in his because of the death of Paul Walker. Um, well, however, James, James Wan's movie is like a miracle because it's like not only does it look amazing, but like it was such a huge success. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he he lost the lead actor of the movie and still carved out like a pretty terrific action movie. Yeah, <laughs> and like what we discussed on the review, he he caught me, and I, maybe he caught you by surprise with the way that he dealt with the situation too. Like it wasn't like oh no, the box explodes when when Paul Walker gets it in the movie. Uh, no, he dealt with it in the way that's like oh wow, they, he he goes on to live a peaceful, happy life, mm-hmm. um, which is really really sweet. But uh, yeah, I agree with you that Justin Lin feels like he's trying to make a movie that <laughs> is cohesive. Um, but then also bringing back people that we like. So uh, I've got a theory about Han, by the way. So let's talk about this. So yeah, at the yeah. end of the trailer, after after the thing where Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez are in a car, they drive off a cliff and then use the rope and a hook as like a as a pendulum swing to get their I, I car back. Say, first of all, that that is uh, that Amazing. was a luck thing. Yeah, <laughs> because he he's just driving off the 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 cliff mm-hmm. and he's hoping that the car attaches to this hook rope thing um and I'm, I'm pretty sure that his axle would have like just flown off and he and michelle rodriguez just fall into the ocean underneath i i know you're wrong because i saw vin do it i mean so <laughs> i mean it's gotta be real he, he planned it he planned it that way he knew he, he didn't do it not knowing it was gonna happen i mean he just mm. regardless yeah. after all this the end of this trailer 
we have guys, well, guess who's home or whatever. And then Sung Kang walks out as Han, snacking yeah. on something and making a, a, a pithy quote. Like, they were all like yeah. freaking out because Han's back alive all of a sudden. The... And it says justice is coming. Like, I know. Yeah, the the justice is coming. It's like the tagline of this movie or of the poster. Yeah. What I, what I want to say is, and I'm saying this on, on the record, this is... This is, uh, what do we call it? Uh, Sun Kang, who, who, Han's twin brother that nobody knew of. That's what I'm thinking is happening here. Just like every other anime out there, it's his twin brother that looks exactly like him, has the same mannerisms. His name is not Han. It's probably like Lan. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're completely wrong. It's Han. Like, there's no, it's not a twin thing. Like, it, it is Han. <laughs> no, let it be the twin brother. But. I, I also appreciate that Justin Lin brought back. Uh, he's the guy that that is making like the rocket-powered Pontiac Fiero, but that's the guy also from Justin Lin's first movie, um, Better, Better Luck Tomorrow. Luck tomorrow. Yeah. He's, he's like one of the the cousins in the movie, mm-hmm. so it's like Justin Lin loves loves to work with people that he. I mean, it is part of the Fast oh. franchise. Like it, that's. <laughs> that is. <laughs> he, they consider it so. They consider Sung Kang's character to be the same character oh, he played oh, in Better okay. Luck Tomorrow. So it's a part of the Fast like, universe. Better Luck Tomorrow is like a precursor to the Fast and Furious franchise. I was like, I can see that. I well, guess. I'm saying it is. I'm saying Sung Kang is playing the oh, same wow. person, so it's connected to the Fast Fast universe. To be honest, that he is playing the same character. <laughs> that's what, I'm saying, has, that's what, that's like what Justin vote. Lin has said. Justin Lin's like, yeah. It's oh, this is not just your theory. This no, is it's like not a theory. Business. I'm saying it's a, like official. Maybe not oh, to sorry, Univer- maybe not to Universal, but as far as Justin Lin's concerned, it's like, yeah, he's just back playing this guy again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is going to be like a time traveling movie. Then I don't know. Um, the question I have for you is. Um, how ridiculous on a scale of one to ten did you think the trailer was? And then how uh, how quickly are you going to go buy your tickets to go see it? I mean, if I was in a position where I wasn't going to see it at a press screening, I already ha- I'd already have my tickets. You um, would have pre-purchased. Yeah, but I mean, so I would have had yeah. it already if I needed to. That right. said, as far as ridiculous goes, honestly, it was like an eight for like <laughs> most for like most of it based off this series and what's because you know you got submarines and shit but when it uh, got to when it got to the combination of drive off thing and use as pendulum and then the mix of hans back i was like well this is now an 11 like it just <laughs> <a lot. laughs> it got crazy yeah you got like pretty my, well I was, I was watching it like at lunch at work and i was like i was like trying not to laugh out loud <laughs> it was like this Dude. is insane so I, I, the trailer, the laugh out loud part, I literally laugh out loud when John Cena's like, when they introduce him as his brother, because I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I wouldn't have guessed it, but also at the same time, like, I'm very highly intrigued. I, so. I already started laughing when he said, when Vin Diesel said, I used to live my life a quarter mile. <laughs> He's got like a baby and like everyone's wearing overalls at his farmhouse. Yeah, and I was thinking, Denim I was thinking when, did, when did Dom move into Hawkeye's next-door neighbor's exactly. house? Exactly, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I was like, isn't this the same set from Avengers? <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, I, am, I am very excited to see this movie, to see where it goes. Uh, but, yeah, the trailer is like... I, I think I've been on this side more than you have, which is, man, these guys are just turning in these, like, you know, super ostentatious, like, superhero-type movies now. Um, so... We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, I just that's where it's been, so I'm not like surprised anymore. It's like, yeah, all right, that's the wavelength we're on. I've just accepted that. Like, this movie. It would be weird if this was like now we're getting down and gritty again. It's going to be really like (laughs) really limited. They they can't do that anymore. They they've gone too far. (laughs) Well, 
Regardless, F9 colon The Fast Saga arrives in theaters May 22nd, so a little before Memorial Day weekend there. So, it's going to uh, uh, have legs. Yeah, so, yeah. Get, so get ready. <laughs> All right, this will be fun when we get to April and you have to do our summer box office gamble, but by the way, because there's a lot of... Uh, there's no like giant movie that's going to definitely dominate so we'll, we'll, we'll see we'll see what happens i have an idea of what one could but we'll see mm-hmm. anyway let's uh so yeah we already talked all about sundance and everything we don't have a main review so we're just going to start wrapping things up here with a little out now since it's out now these are movies that are coming out on blu-ray dvd 4k and all that stuff this week uh feel let's see first up on 4k blu-ray and all that we got dr sleep i thought it was okay i thought it was okay too i liked it but the, the there's a director's cut that comes out with this Ooh. edition that's like three that's three hours but i've heard great things about it the I director's mean, cut yeah i've heard okay. that it's like it's really good like not like it's for one thing it's a full-on finished cut of the movie and it's okay. just like but like this is it was an agreement between the studio and mike flanagan it's like yeah we'll put this theatrical version out but i i have this other cut of it that i'd like to like see things through and Warner brothers like cool yeah so do, do I, you know I, what bothered me the most in that movie is um the unfinishedness of like this woman that he sleeps with, and then also uh, Jacob Tremblay. And I'm like, uh, did they ever inform anybody of where these people are? Because <laughs> you know they just go about their business. We do get a little bit of that, but regardless, there's a director's cut. Maybe it fills it out more. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that one. Uh, the Good Liar. That was of Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren. Uh, I've heard mixed reviews. Yeah, it was fine. Okay. Uh, Last Christmas, which you've seen, I like it. I mean, I like it in that it is it's a vehicle which Henry Golden can still continue to shine. Um, playing with Fire, which I've seen. It's John Cena. Yeah, it's a fire. Oh, that Sorry, one. a smoke jumper. Um, yes. It's fine. With, with uh, uh, Keegan-Michael Key. Keegan-Michael Key and uh, John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo. Uh, the House That Jack Built. Uh, this is with Matt Damon. Or Matt Damon. Matt Dillon. Um, it's a... Oh, I heard... It's a, a, a Von Trier film. Uh, it's pretty, yeah, it's supposed to be pretty brutal. I'm sure right. Marcus loved it. I th- yeah, I was going to say, I think Marcus really liked this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, Waves. Um, I've heard tremendous things about this. I still haven't it, seen it yet. No, you got to get on that. It's great. Okay. Um, let's see. The Nightingale. This is a Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook. Um, also very good. Also very okay. brutal. Yikes. Um, Arctic Dogs, starring uh, Jeremy Rendog Renner, of course. <laughs> who sings on the soundtrack, like four songs, I believe. I mean, that's like his uh, alternate career, aside from like you know beating his wife. Okay. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> um, White Snake. It's an anime. Um, I haven't heard of it. I not an anime. It's a CG. It's a Japanese CG animated film. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Dragonheart Vengeance. Like the continuation of the series? Yes, another entry in the series. Wow, I mean that that's had a lot of life. They've they've had like animated shows and they've had like movies, right? Yeah, this is yeah. I I have to say probably the fourth one or something like that as far as direct video things. Yeah. So yeah, there's those. Uh, let's see. Uh, on uh, TV, you got the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. The complete series is out on Blu-ray this week. Cool. Yeah, I mean you could just see it all on Netflix though. I know. Not everyone has Netflix though. Maybe they this is get this true. Movie. Good point. On a Kino, we have Summer of Sam, Clockers, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, and Crooklyn. All wow, Spike that's Lee a films. lot of yeah, that's like, that's like a heavy like New York yeah, Spike Lee thing. All uh, making their Blu-ray debut this week, so I'm very excited for that. Okay. Um, Boys in the Hood 4K edition. It's out this wow, week. Wow, do you need 4K for that? I, it's out there. It uh, actually looks good with like this grainy 35 millimeter. But 
oh, the best thing 4K can do is just enhance how it originally looked as opposed to mm. completely changing it. Okay. And it's from Sony, and they generally do a very good job with their 4K stuff, so okay. I'm curious what the read is on that. Uh, so those are that. Netflix, we have uh, BoJack Horseman, the final episodes. I've, I've, I've uh, still got to catch up on that show. I've started it. It's very, very good. Oof, okay. Uh, the entire Police Academy franchise is on Netflix now. <laughs> okay. And on Prime, uh, Escape from Danamora is on. Is supposed to be on Prime. I've heard great things about that. I've heard great things too. I really yeah. want to see that. So. Yeah. And, and uh, what's her face? Um, Trisha Arquette won um, an Emmy for it. Yeah, and then you got Benicio del Toro and Paul Dano. Paul Dano. Um, yeah. Directed by Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller directed the. I think he just directed the pilot, unless he directed oh, okay. the whole thing. Um, but regardless, yeah, that's supposed to be fantastic. So. And uh, Fighting with My Family is on Prime now as well. Florence Pugh, uh, that's like the movie that people didn't really know her yet, but she had like an incredible year. And uh, Stephen Merchant directing. It was a really uh, solid underdog sports movie. So, uh, Let's see. Next week, we have our Oscar stuff going on. We'll have our Oscar prediction show. Um, that'll, go up, that'll go up Friday night right after we record it, uh, where we predict all the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do our Oscar wrap-up on Sunday evening. And that'll yeah. go up again right after we record it, pretty much. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. I know Abe and myself, along with Mark Hoban, friend of the show, and my lovely girlfriend, Anna, will all be putting in our predictions to what we see are going to be the – what we think are going to win, and then we'll all make fun of one person or everybody or whatever um, at the, for the wrap-up show. Likely me, but, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see where that happens, yeah. Uh, last thing we do here, what should, what, uh, what should people go and see now, and what do you plan to see next? Abe, what, do you, what should people see in theaters right now? Um, if you haven't seen 1970, check it out. But also, if you haven't seen Little Women, I mean, check that out. That's a that's a really good movie. Um, and next, uh, I am very curious about, I guess, um, hard to say. I mean, I am curious about Sonic, but that comes out in two weeks. So, I don't know. Birds, birds, birds of Prey is next week. And, uh, is that wide? Yeah, it's the DC superhero movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wasn't sure if that was just like New York and LA. It's engagement. a DC superhero movie. Why would it be limited? All right, <laughs> okay. Because they're just like, hey, let's go test the waters first. I've been hearing interesting things about that, but obviously I'm staying away from anything that's too inflammatory. Wait, Birds wait. of Prey, sure. <laughs> that's the next big one. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's Sonic the Hedgehog is obviously Valentine's Day weekend. That just makes sense. I mean, um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I, um, yeah, what, everything up for Oscars is, like, generally pretty good, so, you know, mm-hmm. go see, go see those things, and next time, I got a few things, I'm seeing The Lodge tomorrow, which I'm okay. great that, that, about. Okay, that trailer looked pretty good, but yeah. I've heard mixed reviews. Yeah, so, I'm looking forward to it, so we'll see what happens. Cool. But yeah, um, that's gonna do it. Uh, you can, uh, find all my stuff at thecodyzeek.com, everything I know is up over there, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Uh, Instagram, Abe.Mua, and Twitter.com slash Wallace Hashtag, thanks, Alex. And, uh, yeah, you can find all the other episodes, you can find all the other episodes about Now 30 Abe on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, and Stitcher. HHWLD, Podcast, uh, Spot- uh, SoundCloud, and Podomatic. And, uh, email us at nowpodcast.gmail.com. Facebook.com slash Podcast and Twitter.com slash underscore podcast. Instagram.com slash underscore podcast as well. And, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks again to Alex thanks to the listeners and uh, we'll be back with more Oscar stuff but until then so long and goodbye
the other two I want to mention, one of them I haven't seen, but I've heard is similar. Uh, I think it's called Surge. Um, and it just won an award last oh, night. Oh, it's a soda documentary? Uh, no. But that was- <laughs> 